This was to be the last year of the torturous internment in Siberia, but tragedy was never far away. On a trip to nearby Sverdlovsk, Fanny Sofia collapsed in the street from internal bleeding. She was taken to hospital and Zhutek to a nearby orphanage. After all the years of suffering, it was unbelievably cruel, just as it appeared that they were so close to freedom. The prisoner of war camp was totally overcrowded as more and more Germans arrived. It was perhaps because of this that the Bolsheviks decided to move the Poles south to free the barracks. It was around this time that the eagerly awaited aid arrived. Maria, until her last breath, was grateful to the Americans and would give thanks in her prayers to those who would remind the empty stomachs of the taste of milk, sugar and eggs. This kind act went some way to restore their faith in the world and give them hope that they had not been totally forgotten. The twins were 12 years old by now. It would have been nice to have even a small mirror to see their own faces and how the rapidly changing bodies looked. Yunya thought it was a pity those kind Americans had not thought of it, to be able to see the maroon and navy check jacket and beige beret that Yunya now wore every day, even though it was not cold enough to do so. Guavdi and Natasha said she looked very pretty in it, and not without a touch of envy kept stroking the soft, delicate fabric. Shoes remained a problem, as it was impossible to wear size 41 army boots. On second thoughts, maybe a mirror would not have been a good idea, Nunia reasoned. Maria should not be allowed to see her thin face and grey hair and those sad eyes deprived of any shine. Maria might look into the mirror and wonder just who the strange woman was. In September 1944, news arrived that soon all Poles would be allowed to leave the camp. Nobody believed this at first as for the last two years the exiles had been fed a diet of broken promises. But this time it turned out to be a truth. The NKVD prepared a detailed list of all the exiles and everybody had to sign up in person to be repatriated. The day of departure approached, a day so eagerly awaited, but very sad at the same time. It was time to bid farewell to those left behind in the inhospitable Ural Mountains, to bid farewell to those who had died. Yunya's family made two wreaths and in silence set off in the direction of Jikcharka Cemetery. There was not a single family in the whole camp that did not leave somebody dear to them behind, and they all walked together as in a funeral cortege. Sadly, this place was no longer sacred, and as it had been used for Sophos cattle pasture, broken birch tree crosses lay on the ground, some of them even covered in a cow manure. Where graves once stood, there were clumps of dry and overgrown Siberian grass. Unable to locate individual graves, the exiles gathered around the most recently formed one to pray for all the departed, undertaking to erect proper tombstones once they return to their homeland. That way, the souls of these forced laborers would finally rest at peace. They laid the sad flowerless wreaths on top of the grave. The odor of Christmas trees mixed with autumn leaves hung in the air. Within no time a huge stack was formed and candles were lit. Eternal rest grant to him, O Lord. Yunya looked up to the soft blue cloudless sky. It appeared as if the Ural forest held its breath for a second. The tall pines and spruce trees rustled gently 
as they bent the grounds over Jikcharka Cemetery and whispered a promise. This is how they bid final farewell to Antony. Before their departure, Maria went to Sverdlovsk to visit Zofia, who was still recovering from a serious surgery and was not fit to undertake the promised journey to an unknown destination. Dear Maria, it is so unfair. After all these years of struggle and survival, fate has chosen to separate us. Let me take Zutek, please. The twins are inconsolable. I spoke to the doctor, and they think you will be in hospital for at least another month. You can come and join us later, said Maria. I think it is better that I keep Zutek close to me. He is my treasure and my only reason to get up from this deathbed. Maria, how would I go about finding you? Don't you remember they said we were just going to the next forever ship and that turned out to be Siberia? You are right, Sophia. We still know nothing. If only God allows me, I will find you. The freight train which was to transport them spent several days parked in the sidings prior to departure. A number of the excise took up position in the banks very early. They were determined that nobody would push them back to their cold, horrible, cockroach-infested barracks. Nunya never understood why she remembered so little of the journey. Perhaps that was because Nunya and her family had a whole top bunk to themselves, and that amount of space felt just wonderful. In Revda excise from other neighbouring camps boarded the train. The lower bank on the opposite side of the carriage was taken by the elderly lady with an eleven year old girl. Her name was Pani Toporova, and Ger, who was called Nina, was her granddaughter, who she had been looking after for the last two years. They travelled for a long time and made frequent stops in the middle of forests or on the side tracks of big railway stations. They left behind the towering Ural Mountains and entered many more kilometres of long tunnels. They crossed long bridges, suspended, from which the people below looked like dwarfs and the houses like matchboxes. Ripe bunches of bird cherry brushed against the windows of the train and Nunya wondered why nobody had bothered to collect the fruit. Perhaps there were no settlements close by or the inhabitants here had not experienced hunger. The memory of the faces of Nunez's friends standing on the platform gradually began to fade and soon became a foggy memory, like a picture diluted to finally dissolve in the autumn mist. The inside of the wagon was filled with Pani Gerber's recollections and her silver-like voice sounded quite unlike what Nunez had heard from her before. She appeared to be drunk with happiness. She had every right to be so, as she had not gifted forever anybody to the unfriendly land they left behind. The young girl stood by the wide open door, smiling in a friendly way to the train conductor, who warned them gently to behave properly and to remain safe. Despite the cold wind, nobody wanted the door to be closed. Sometimes they stood for a few hours in the deep forest, waiting for trains to pass, carrying the wounded German prisoners of war, heading in the opposite direction, to the Urals. Sad eyes could be seen through the small grated windows of the cattle wagons. Then something as sharp as barbed wire would pierce the hearts of the exiles and a strange feeling of guilt would settle as if it was their fault that the Germans had been captured and were being taken to the inhuman camp that they knew only too well. They passed Kazan and after two days stop in Moscow they changed direction from west to south. As far as Nunya could recollect, they travelled through the central Russian upland. They left behind Tua, Orel, Kursk, Kharkiv and later Dnipropetrovsk and Zaporozhye. For a short period they travelled alongside the Don, 
and Nunia remembered the striking blue of the river against calcium rocks, which were as white as snow. It wasn't a dream, but it really was warm in the Ukraine, even with the train door open at night. The conductor of the train must have been telling the truth. They were travelling towards the Azov Sea. They passed endless fields of cotton, watermelons and melons, peach orchards and wide vineyards. They all were so happy. They needed so little, just a bit of sunshine and the sight of God's luscious nature. Was what they were experiencing freedom? The wagon, with its door wide open, even when they were in motion, felt like that. They passed Zaporozhye, and the train finally arrived at the destination and came to a halt at the small station of Alexeyevka. The passengers were divided into school classrooms where they awaited work in different sofas and coffers. They were transported in old, low, open trucks that felt as if they were on the verge of falling apart. White, open place with not a single tree inside were everywhere. To Nunya, this did not look inviting. After three hours of hellish journey through this bare landscape, a few buildings suddenly appeared out of nowhere. They had been well camouflaged by the tall grass. The driver pulled the truck to a halt by a small settlement made of twelve little mud houses surrounded by widespread open fields. On them, stacks of cut wheat were visible. Somebody in the past had time to sow the wheat, but now there were no male hands left to harvest properly. The houses had been made from a mixture of manure, straw and mud. Four Polish families were placed in each hut. Nunia's family, along with Grandma Toporova and her granddaughter, was allocated a small rectangular room in one of the huts. Pani Gerber and her children were placed in a small hut towards the end of the settlement. The remaining mud huts were occupied by Ukrainians. This small settlement had the very noble name of Solidarnoye, Solidarity, and belonged to the government-owned farm called Krasnoye, the Red One. There was a kindergarten, a headquarters building for the settlement manager, a small infirmary, shop and canteen. In the infirmary, there was a 30-year-old paramedic called Luda. Lila later befriended Luda, who told her in a candid conversation how she had contracted syphilis from one of the officers from the front. She explained how he was a real bastard, but really blamed the Praklatea Vaina, the cursed war, for all her suffering. Toporova was a short woman with neatly combed back grey hair. She was very dignified and struck Nunez almost regal in her bearing. She had been born to a rich family of landowners and educated in Kiev. She retained her Russian accent even when speaking Polish and had a very specific way of expressing herself and her views. She confirmed that Lila's friendship with Luda did not constitute any risk and decided it was time to explain everything to the young ladies. The new teacher explained the dangers lurking for young people, especially girls. She explained many things which until then the children had no idea about. She described what rape was and the consequences and illness that often follow. Luda was not the only girl in the settlement to be gifted syphilis by Soviet soldiers and some of them were not ashamed to talk about it. Solidarnoy was situated in the middle of a step between Kherson region and Nova Escania. On their arrival, Nunez's family had to repair missing parts of the outside wall, as it was possible to see into their modest room from the outside. Nunez couldn't wait to get out and take in the Ukrainian landscape 
hoping to find a quiet space for herself. But instead, there was only the limitless, treacherous steps, where, just like in a thick forest, one could get lost very easily. She stopped at the road leading from Krasny to Ascania. As far as the eye could see, there was only one vast, flat surface aligned with the horizon. Fields full of ripened wheat stretched out ahead. Despite the late autumn, as it was already mid-November, nothing pointed to the fact that the human arm would bend to collect the lost treasures. The wheat that had been cut was tied together in stacks left open to the changing weather under the open sky. Beyond lay black fields of unharvested ripe sunflowers, bending their heavy heads and scattering large fat seeds on the ground. Delicious shimiechki. In the opposite direction, towards Krasny, two tractors were turning over heavy clots of fertile soil in preparation for the autumn sowing. There was not a single tree in sight, not even a tiny bush. The road ran at the acute angle towards Ascania, passing by a cemetery and fields covered with waist-high silky savanna grass. The fields full of watermelons, melons, fruit trees and vineyards that they had passed on the journey were nowhere to be seen. Disappointed, she sat down on the cracked earth. Suddenly she heard a man's voice. She shivered as she recalled Grandma Stoporova's warnings. Good morning. I'm your manager. My name is Serabin. Can you please tell all the Polish families that I would like to talk to them? I was hoping that they would send more of you, and not just women and children. Junia observed this unusually friendly man. He was tall, slim, with a long goose-like neck, which moved easily on his shoulders. His light eyes reflected the serene Ukrainian sky. He had straight golden hair like ripe wheat, which fell messily across his forehead. As they walked, he continued talking to Nunia, but was already looking towards the madhouse in front of which Maria was standing. The exiles gathered outside one of the madhouses. A number of them were leaning against the wall, and Nunia was worried that the pressure would be too much, as the madhouse seemed delicate and crumbly, like one of Panruva's cakes. None of the excise had any shoes. The manager looked at excise with the expression of true compassion. Serabin showed them around the soft house. He walked ahead on his long thin legs with the crowd of poles following right behind him. He stopped by each madhouse, introducing by name the inhabitants, as they of the madhouses were inhabited by locals, who were mainly children and elderly women. Now the children's job was to separate the seeds from the husk. Every morning at dawn, they marched the soft horse fields. With large pitchforks, they broke down and separated the huge heavy stacks of wheat. The wheat that had grain was put to one side, whilst those with empty ears were put aside to be burned. Nunia had never seen so many mice in her life. There were hundreds of them, maybe even thousands. They gave off a very specific suffocating odor. It was a particularly disgusting sight when instead of blades of wheat, at the end of the large fork, Fat little creatures sat impaled there instead. In the first months of their stay in Ukraine, the health of the excise improved dramatically. They looked and felt more human. Hollow cheeks filled in and eyes regained their shine. Only Danusia was not able to gain any weight, and the hard labor in the Zimianki had ruined her joints, which hurt her so much that she was not able to sleep at night. That didn't stop her asking Serbin for additional work so the family could be rewarded with more wheat. Grandma Toporova massaged Danusia's swollen joints and applied herb compresses, but nothing helped. Seven days a week, lorries full of golden wheat grain headed towards the harbour. The wheat was loaded on trucks from the piles guarded by Danusia. This wave-like guard really enjoyed her job 
and also helps Rabin with some administrative duties, taking note of the weight of the trucks when empty and loaded. The manager was very pleased and told everybody how diligently she fulfilled her tasks. He turned a blind eye when he spotted the pockets of Danusha's American army coat brimming with grain, looking in the opposite direction and humming a Ukrainian song instead. This additional grain was stored in a sack and hidden outside under piles of fuel. If this additional wheat had been discovered, there would have been severe consequences. In the six years of her exile, the teenager Lila had to master so many different things. Cutting wood in minus 30 degrees, buffet lady, waitress, cleaner, coat woman and graveyard attendant, bearing her own father. She was a schoolgirl who, despite horrendous circumstances, managed to excel in her studies and pass all the examinations. She was a teacher, musician, choreographer and shoemaker. She played many instruments, including the violin, harmonica, mandolin, bawawaika, cymbals and guitar. She taught children to sing, dance and read music. She knew how to write and how to drive, to paint and even sell her own landscapes. These were initially renditions of Siberia, full of pain and longing, and later the quiet landscapes of the Ukrainian steppes, with their high, silky green grass scattered with white flowers, rocked by the gentle wind or handsome nobles tending sunflowers. Every Sunday she travelled to Kahovka, looking for charitable buyers of her work at the very modest bazaar. Lila was capable of driving the big trucks, but the Soviets only permitted her on the tractors, and then only when one of the Ukrainian girls was sick. Above all, Nunya would remember Lila for her unprecedented abilities and kindness. She was not just talented, but like a second mother to Nunya, Danusha and Yuretek. She committed herself totally to help Maria save the family, a gift that Nunya felt she would never be able to repay. The spring of 1945 arrived, happy and full of promise, now that the war was finally coming to an end. The hearts of the exiles were overwhelmed with longing towards their beloved and never forgotten homeland. The grass on the freshly green steppe rustled in a friendly manner. Children waded through the freshly grown grass, which reached halfway to their calves, picking as they went colourful tulips, which the generous hand of God and nature had scattered in abundance. This felt like a gift for the long hardship of forced labour in Siberia. Spring awakened the whole settlement. Farm birds belonging both to the Sophos and those privately owned were reluctant to feed out on the steppe and instead attacked the piles of grain guarded by Danusha. She tried to chase them away with her pitchfork, but the greedy geese were not always obedient. The 1st of May was Workers' Day and a big communist holiday. All the Sophos workers went to the cemetery where they celebrated late into the night, sitting in the high steppe grass drinking samogon a homemade alcoholic drink, eating roast goose and singing songs. This was the way they celebrated in Solidarnoya because Serabin really looked after his workers. Everyone agreed that he was the best manager in the whole of the Soviet Union. It was at this time that the letter arrived from Jakub carrying the terrible news from the Golden House and describing the tragedy that had taken place there. The death of Olenka and her daughter was devastating news for Maria. The letter described in detail the serious wounds that the whole family had endured. There was no news about Mikoi, Olenka's husband, who had disappeared without a trace. 
Jakub wrote with sadness about the desolation of Litvinovka, whose land had been appropriated to be managed by the local sophos. The forest was also taken, and the only private property allowed were small allotments. On the 9th of May 1945, news reached Solidarnoye that the Second World War was over. There were wild celebrations by those who lived there permanently and those blown there by the winds of war. The geese were roasted again, and they were delicious. Serabin took out a little bottle of vodka from underneath his modest jacket, and far away, on this wild steppe, they started the Polish-Ukrainian victory feast. In the summer, more American aid arrived, but it was seriously depleted by the time it reached Nunez's family. In the end, they received only one long army coat and two dresses, which were too tight even for the twins. It was only after Grandma Toporova had unpicked the sleeves and added extra fabric that somehow Nunya and Danusha managed to squeeze into them. Pani Geber refused the offer of two skirts and took only an army coat. She still insisted on keeping her potato sacks. I want to go back to Krakow wearing them, both me and my children. I do not want to hide the hurt I experience in this horrendous, fraudulent country. Let my relatives, if they are still any alive, see how we were dressed and fed by the beloved communist regime. By now, their friend Helenka, just like Lila, was quite grown up and felt suffocated by the life in the small settlement. Lila tried to organize entertainment to distract everybody, singing, dancing and reciting. She played the harmonica and Alyosha, Nunya and Danusha sang Ukrainian songs. But it was not enough and longing for a more normal life weighed heavily on the youngsters. Nunya wanted to escape too, even for a day, to the town, just to see something apart from the steppe and the miserable dwarf-like madhats. One day in the late summer, Nunya took a few of Lila's paintings and together with Helenka secretly boarded one of the wheat trucks which were heading to Kahovka. They arrived without any problems and easily found the market. Nunya really hoped that she would be able to sell the sad paintings which depicted winter in Siberia. Nunya, said Helenka, I have a great idea. Let's stay here for a few more days, get a proper job and earn some money to buy shoes. Nunya loved the idea and the girls started to ask the local market women for work. None of the women would even speak to them. Slowly they made their way to the harbour area where everybody looked at them very strangely, focusing mainly on their dirty bare feet. Nunya had learned to curl her toes beneath her foot so nobody could see them. By the end of the day, the girls stood hopelessly in the middle of the strange town. As the evening drew, tracks departed for the surroundings of horses. So did the one for Solidarnoye. Nunya, by now, was mildly annoyed by her older friend's stupid idea. They were afraid and remembered Grandma Toporova's warning. They started to walk and reached the asphalt road leading to Ascania and took the decision to walk all the way back. The night was chilly, but the stars in the full moon lit the road through the steppe. Suddenly a car stopped right behind them. Nunya was too scared to turn round and look. She was waiting for some unkind arm again to grab her, pull her somewhere into the high grass, and she recalled thirteen-year-old Polish girl killed recently. She started to cry. A soft woman's voice reached her, and Nunya turned to see a young, elegant woman getting out of a black limousine. My God, what are you doing here? It's one o'clock in the morning. Where are you heading? Who allowed you to go? What a irresponsible mother. How old are you? I'm fifteen, said Helenka. And you? Thirteen, replied Nunya. Silly girls, and barefoot on top of it. And do you know that there are poisonous snakes out at night too? Nunya, as usual, curled her toes in embarrassment. Well now, where are you going? 
to Krasnoye. We were looking for work in Kahovka. And where is Krasnoye of yours? About twenty kilometers from the town, but we are not sure how far we have walked already. The woman turned towards the men sitting in the big black car. Nina looked at the lady's feet. In the moonlight, her shoes shone like black patent ones with a bow that Maria used to have. Get in, children. We will drop you off. Hmm. What sort of parents do you have that allow you to roam in the middle of the night on the wide, dangerous step? We will drop you about three kilometers from Krasnoye, as our destination changes there. It is not our parents' fault. It is our own. We intended to return at four in the afternoon. But my friend here wanted to try and find some work. Me too. Work that pays money, not a few kilograms of wheat. Do they not pay you on the soft horse? Never. We only get grain. Well, well. Difficult times, I imagine. You have a strange accent, Gas. Where do you come from? From nowhere, Nunya answers stupidly. What do you mean, nowhere? Everybody's born somewhere. I know you are not Ukrainian, so where from? Of course we are exiles. We are Polish exiles. I was born in Vilnius, my friend in Warsaw. Silence fell. Helenka had not uttered a single word. The older man sitting beside Nunya in the back seat cleared his throat and pulled up the collar of his coat, as if it was cold for some reason. Nunya thought it was warm, soft and cosy in a black limousine. What have you under your arm, child? the woman asked. These are my sister's Lila's paintings. She is very pretty and extremely talented. My mum says that, and all neighbours agree, recently uh, she sewed tapetki for us. Do you know what they are? A bit like ballet shoes, except they are not for dancing, but for everyday use. Unfortunately, they fell apart with the first autumn mud, and the sole does not last long as it was made from cardboard. And what would you like to become when you grow up? I can tell you only, but only as we are about to part company. I would like to become a doctor. <laughs> really? That is a very noble profession. But can I give you a word of advice? She said and started to laugh. Yes, please. Remember, young lady, that every doctor speaks very little. You will have to learn that. Helenka started to cough loudly, as if she was choking, and Nunya understood that again she has gone too far. This is war, my child, the cursed war. That is not the only reason. It was like that before, said Nunya. Helenka could not take it any more and interrupted. My friend is a little bit cuckoo here and makes up a lot of stories. And if you only heard her dreams of ghosts and devils. Maybe you would like to buy one of the landscapes, suggested Nunya. I need money for shoes. I would like the same as you have, just like Maria used to have. Who is Maria? My mother. They were very beautiful. As you see, Gradenka, she's really a silly girl and always talks rubbish. But Nunya was not put off by Helenka and continued, Please, buy even one. They are really beautiful, even if you can't see them properly in the moonlight. How much are these paintings? Five rubles. I will take two. You choose them for me. Nunya turned around in her seat and placed two paintings on the rear window ledge of the car. She looked sheepishly at the man sitting next to her. His hat was pulled down low as if trying to disguise his face, the faceless man, Nunya thought. Is the gentleman not feeling very well? No, he's just very tired. He came from afar. And what is your name, Grzdanka, if I may ask? Tatiana, Tatiana Ivanovna. 
The woman got out of the car and took two sandwiches from her small case and offered them to Nunya and Helenka. She smiled in a friendly fashion. Her eyes appeared dark, happy and very alert. Goodbye, Gas. Our routes diverge here. Head left to Krasnoye. Please be careful and stick to the road. It is very easy to get lost on the step. I don't think you'll come across any other dangers here. Perhaps a small fox. Goodbye, Tatiana Ivanovna. Goodbye, Grashdanin. And thank you. Dasvidania, murmured the man under his nose. Who was he? Another great man, for sure, Nunya thought. He smelled of a subtle, expensive perfume. Certainly not the red poppy of Arbuzov or Buryanov, thought Nunya. Autumn arrived and the steppe grass dried out. The white silky flowers fell to the ground and the wind blew Kura in all directions across the open fields and meadows. As in the previous year, some of the wheat had still not been harvested. Also the piles of wheat that Danusha guarded grew too, as did the bags of stolen grain that had hidden under the piles of Kurai. Very soon this extra grain would be part of an important exchange. In the evening, the workers of the nearby Kohos would be coming with carts full of stolen fruit. Serabin had continued to turn a blind eye even to increase amounts of grain that Nunez's family were bringing back from the wheat fields. At one o'clock, on a starlight night, a number of carts arrived at Solidarnoye. They were laden with grapes, watermelons, melons and late maturing peaches. Human ghost-like figures appeared from the mad houses. Everybody was holding two buckets in their hands and nobody spoke. The terms of the barter had been agreed some time before and nobody was allowed to change them. In December, the exiles received the happiest and most long-awaited news. They were to report as soon as possible to Alexeyevka to collect so-called repatriation cards. Nobody understood why there, which was 40 kilometers away, rather than the neighboring Kachovka, but all the Polish mothers set off on foot for the piece of paper for which they had waited six long years. They returned safely from the long walk, tired but full of joy. The children ran out of the madhouse to greet the returning women as they heard them calling in the distance. Beloved children, at last, at last we are going home to our homeland. We will be departing in February, February 1946. It's only six weeks away. Serapin was equally overjoyed, dancing together with the exiles, laughing and wiping back his tears. He had come to really love the Polish people with an open heart. Perhaps their arrival brought a bit of happiness to the monotony of life on the steppe. To spend all your life in such a sparsely populated terrain, in mud houses that smelled of manure, must have been God's punishment. The day of departure arrived and an old open cargo truck stood in the courtyard. The wind was blowing hard and as most snowflakes were dropping, which melted before they even reached the ground. Maria entered the room where Serabin was sitting. She held in her hand the American army coat that she had been saving for Edmund. All along she had hoped that Edmund had discovered from Jakob where they had been sent, but unfortunately she had received no news from him all the time that they were in Ukraine. Dear Serabin, this is for you, dear friend. It's just a piece of fabric and really nothing. You deserve so much more. Perhaps I should have worded this differently. There is no price to put on what you offered us poor Siberian exiles. You, Serabin, will always stay in our memory. I will never allow my children to forget your kind, friendly face, full of compassion and your discretion when necessary to avoid harm to even one Polish family. Farewell, my friend. The truck started. Serabin remained in the courtyard. Halfway to Alexievka, the truck gave up and the rest of the journey had to be made on foot. 
a bunch of excise looking like vagabonds. Almost everybody had a small sack on their back containing some boiled wheat grain, a few miserable items of clothing and a few pancakes, which had been fried and given to them by Ukrainian women. The children walked barefoot. At the rear of this convoy was Pani Gerber, her potato sack dress flapping in the wind. This convoy of beggars appeared to be flying over the steppe, hardly touching the frozen clots of ground. Their faces appeared more noble with each step, beaming with happiness. During one of the breaks, Lila stood on top of her sacks, unpleated her hair and allowed the wind to blow it free. She lifted her eyes up to the sky and started to recite the opening lines from Pantadeur. Everybody stood to attention and from deep inside their chest, the dearest words resounded the sound of the Polish national anthem. Pani Gerber started to weep, and as she wiped her tears, she shouted, Poland, will you take this child in this poor dress? I miss you so much. Upon arrival, many emotional meetings took place, and after two years of separation, the excise looked for friends and acquaintances from Dzikciarka. Kisses and embraces followed. Pani Plewinska with Janusz warmly greeted Maria. Lila encountered some of her friends and even schoolgirls from the same grammar school in Vileka who had been taken to East Siberia from the same classroom as she had been but four months later. She was 14 years old and so much had changed. The twins looked for Zutek and Maria asked around for Zephaya. They looked around all the schools where they were temporary housed and around the railway station, but could not find the Zavoy family. They felt very sad and prayed for a miracle. While waiting for the next lecture of the transport, the children celebrating by putting on a performance of folk dancing and singing. They could now parody of her process without any fear of NKVD. Everybody came onto the stage. All Nunia wanted to do was cry aloud and did not join in the celebratory mood. She felt she had lost her great love. A little captain. Several days passed and the train was still sitting in the sidings, the locomotive silent. The director of the train had disappeared and fear started to creep slowly into the hearts of the exiles. They had so many questions and no answers. Finally, that well-known whistle and then the conductor's words, Zanimaitsi miesta, zanimaitsi miesta, we jaim. Take your seats, take your seats, we are leaving. The train set off slowly. And as it did so, the exiles again broke into the song. Jeszcze Polska nie zginęła, póki my żyjemy. Poland has not yet perished so long as we still live. The walls of the cattle wagons shook from the strength of the rendition. Póki my żyjemy, so long as we live.